Hey, CNFers. It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction, leaders in the world of narrative journalism, personal essay, memoir, radio, and documentary film, so you can apply their tools of mastery to your own work. I dig it. I hope you do too. Thank you for listening. Episode 73 comes at you with Patsy Sims. She is the author of The Clan. Can I get an amen inside the tents and tabernacles of American revivalists? And most recently, she's the editor of The Stories We Tell, True Tales by America's Greatest Women Journalists, published by the Sager Group. Patsy has been such a champion of creative nonfiction that it's easy to forget that she was one of the pioneers in the 60s and 70s. She was the Dumbledorean headmaster of Goucher College's creative nonfiction MFA program, and few people, myself included, ever asked her about her origins and her own writing. But that's sort of the myopic nature of MFA students. Again, myself included, this is my way of atoning. That's neither here nor there. In this episode, we talk about book projects as mini-educations, paying attention to people who aren't paid attention to, building relationships, persistence, and her fascinating approach to digesting notes, and a lot more. As you know, it's about this time I kindly ask for reviews, as they are the currency that validates this whole enterprise. It takes less than 60 seconds, and it helps out so much. There are already 19 ratings and reviews, and none of them, quote, none of them are from family members, Scouts Honor. Also, I have a pretty slick monthly newsletter where I share my monthly reading recommendations and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast. I'd love for you to join the growing list. It's once a month, no spam, can't beat it. So, that's where we're at. In this episode, number 73, we start with me asking her what clicked in her as a young person to tell these kinds of stories. Well, you know, I think maybe it started when I was a child. I mean, I grew up in the South, and, you know, I'm sure you've heard Southerners love storytellers, storytelling. And, uh, you know, perhaps that was the first thing. Um, But, and then, as I, I went along, I... You know, well, I think one that we never grow out of liking stories, but um, I, I, I really love people. I'm fascinated by people. Um, I love learning about things, and I think you know, all of those things combined drew me into doing narrative nonfiction. When, when I went to college, I majored in journalism, but I think before college, I always thought. You know, I wanted to be a writer since I was a child, but I think I thought I was going to be a fiction writer. And I majored in journalism initially because I thought I have to have a way to support myself, you know, to eat. And uh, so I thought I'll major in journalism and I can support myself in journalism. But, you know, then I got hooked on it and I, you know, I loved the reporting. I love the reporting almost as much or as much as the writing. And, you know, so that's how I got started in, in nonfiction. And and then in the late 60s when Capote published In Cold Blood, you know, I think that really showed me that 
I could do anything with nonfiction that the fiction writer does, except I can't make it up. And, uh, you know, I think that was all that of what led me to where I am now. What what about the reporting process did drew you so uh, like what what part about that process did you find so addicting? Because like, you were just saying that there that information gathering phase was almost like better than the writing. So like what about that part really really hooked you? You know, I'm curious. I I love to learn about people. I love to learn about new things. And, uh, you you know, it's it's like each story, each book that I embark on, I'm able to have, you know, many education. Uh, And I I love that discovering things and learning about things. In terms of people, I love to get at what makes people tick. You know, I love to learn about them and find out about them and and um, try to find about what compels them to do the things they do and what made them the way they are. Anyway, you know, it's sort of a discovery. It enabled me to get a lot of educations without having to earn master's degrees, I guess you'd say. <laughs> and what about certain subcultures or certain people uh, like what or what subcultures are you most attracted to 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 exercise that degree of creativity that draws you to the reporting? One, you know, I've had a real interest in race relations, um, and so like that was really, I guess, at the heart of me wanting to do a book on the Ku Klux Klan, and I, you know, it, it's. Um, I think it's those interests. Um, I, I guess I also am interested in people who are everyday people, the kind of people who they make the news only with their birth and death certificates announcements. And, you know, I don't even know that that's happening anymore. So they're people that nobody would pay attention to. And, uh, and I, you know, I, with the plan and also with revival, I, I wanted to get into them to find out what drew them, uh, what you know made a clan man, clansman or clans people um, have the feelings that they have and to feel so strongly about them, and, you know what made them tick. And in certain respects, I guess the same kind of feelings about um, people in revival. So I think it's it's really, I guess, if you look at my work over time, it, it has been people who are low on the totem pole, who who um, you know their lives are pretty drab, you know, and, and to try to get into them and find out why they go in the directions they go when. When I was doing the the revival book, which came after doing the Klan book, I noticed that there were a lot of um, similarities between the Klan people and the revival people in terms of background, education, or lack of education, financial status, um, and and I, I also was in some of the same locations where I had done, I had gone to Klan rallies, and then in the same location, I would go to a revival with 3,000 people. And it occurred to me that, you know, they had to be related. They had to know one another, and why did one person go to the Klan, and why did one go to the revival? So it's, I guess, 
you know, that I've sought these things out because I, I you know, I'm eager at finding the answers to those kinds of questions. Mm. The the a big challenge with doing that kind of a deep dive into these these kind of subcultures is a matter of access, and and not just and echoing what Lee Gookin uh, told me was it's not just getting access it's finding it's it's finding people who actually want to be written about it doesn't matter how much you want to write about them like if they don't want to be written about then you're, you're then you're stuck so. What? How? How have you, over the years, uh, engendered that sense of trust that allowed you to get access to these subcultures, and then, and also to find the people who want to be write, written about, and and then get access to them to write about them. Wow. Okay. I to back up. I think that initially it was important to me to build up contacts and sources, and so. I think that they're, you know, they're common thread, common tie in a lot of things that I've done. And so I built up a Rolodex. And initially, like on the plan book, I would call my sources in the fast, the people who I had done various stories with, and, and get their suggestions on who I should go talk to. And, and initially, I thought that I really needed an entree. I needed these people who... I knew to sort of uh, vouch for me and, and introduce me to these people in order to get them to talk to me. But I found as I went along that I really didn't need that, that I could do it on my own. And I think that to me, the way that you gain access, and, and sometimes the people who think they don't want to be interviewed, is to be really down to earth, to be very genuine, and to really. Um, come across as someone who's interested in finding out about them and their stories. Um, and and I think being a good listener is really, you know, important. So, I, you know, I just, I, I, I guess on all of these, you know, I've called people, I've tried to be sincere on the phone with them, and uh, I think I think a lot of people were surprised, for instance, when when I did the claim and that I got the people to talk to me and that they said some of the things they said to me into a tape recorder. And in that case, I think it was a matter, one, that I, you know, that I did try to be sincere. And when they would say, you know, ask me my beliefs, I, I do believe in always being honest about where you stand. I don't think you need to broadcast it, but I, I would say I don't share your beliefs, but I want to hear you, you about why you believe what you do. And that seemed to satisfy them. So I think it's that, you know, developing them having confidence in you and an interest in you uh, and you're, you're willing to be fairness, fair to them. I really can't think of anybody... I'm sure they have them, but I can't think of standouts of people who absolutely refused to talk to me. I also, in, in along that line, believe in being persistent and keep trying until you can get them to talk to you. And I'm, I think when I say that, I'm talk, I think about the evangelist, the television evangelist, Ernest Angley, who I'm not sure if he is still around or still broadcasting. Um, but when I was doing my revival book, I tried, I was trying to get him 
for an interview. And he kept turning me down, or his people kept turning me down. So I went around him, and I interviewed a lot of people who knew him or had crossed paths with him. And I was almost through with my book. And I gave it one last chance, or one last try. And I, I wrote him a letter and told him that, you know, I was completing my book and um, that I was very sorry that he had chosen not to talk to me, that I had talked to people who knew him, et cetera, uh, but that was not the same as talking to him. So, you know, he knew then that I was going to, he was going to be in the book, whether he talked to me or not. He did not know who I talked to or what they said, and I very quickly got a phone call saying, he will talk to you, <laughs> and, and so I got it. And so I guess the lesson there, too, is, is, is perseverance, you know, not giving up. But um, and, and so strategizing. Yeah, and it's uh, it's also being confident enough to to be patient and, and play the long game, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be patient. You have to not give up. You know, in, in tracking people down, but in this kind of riding period, you know, you're talking about long range things that are going to take a long time. I, you know, if you want to further another example of, of one who I just kept out, it, it happened down in Mississippi um, with the White Knights of Mississippi, which was the most violent, secretive you know, plan in the 60s. And so much of the violence that we read about and heard about during the Civil Rights Movement was the work of the White Knights. And um, so when I went down to... When I got down, worked my way down to Mississippi to do interviews, I thought, you know, these people, they're going to be crawling out of the woodworks. I, you know, have no problem. And I, when I got there, I learned they were very secretive. I could not get anybody to talk to me or to admit that they were in the Klan. But I managed to have the number of a guy, Edgar Ray Killen. And, um, and so I tried him, and I could tell on the phone, he would say, oh, I'd really like to talk to you, but I, you know, I can't. But I could tell that this guy was curious about me. And um, so I kept calling. And I, you know, I, I was finished with Mississippi, you know, went to Texas, you know, did everything. And then I was actually had passed from Mississippi, was in Alabama on my way back to Pennsylvania, where I lived at the time. And I decided, okay, I'm going to try one more time to call Edgar Ray Killen. And I called Edgar Ray Killen. And he, of course, he did not know. If it, of course, you know, there was no caller ID. He didn't know where I was. Um, and I told him, you know, that I really still wanted to interview him. And so he said, I think I can do it tonight. Well, I got my little MG and headed back west and drove to Mississippi. You know, I had no place to interview him except my motel. And I won't go next still another story. But at any rate, <laughs> you know, I, I got a four-hour interview with Edgar A. Killen. And he is now in prison. He was just convicted a few years back uh, for the murders of the three civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in 1964. But that, you know, is another example of, you know, if you just keep trying, it will eventually pay off more times than I think you would think. Where did that tenacity come from for you? Oh, uh, my mother. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I come from this long line of 
I guess you'd say adventurous. Um, they they just you know they kept moving west and and my mother was not afraid of the devil and uh, you know she just was full test and vinegar I guess you would say <laughs> and and I think I think I inherited that from her you know she did she just went after it she wasn't a writer or anything like that I mean her level of writing was recipes and recalls magazine. When when you decided to pursue pursue journalism and uh, any any conversations you might have had with your mom, did was she outright uh, offering you that kind of uh, counsel of saying like, well, Patsy, if you're if you're gonna do this, like, make sure you, you know you really sink your teeth into this and like really uh, go at it with a sense of of the rigor that you grew up with, or did she offer you any of that kind of counsel? My mother didn't want me to be a writer. Um, my mother, wa- my mother wanted me to be a ballet dancer. She wanted me to go to New York and dance. <laughs> um, it was greatly disappointed when I did not go in that direction. Um, the writing part came from my father. Mm. He was um, an avid reader. Earliest memories of my father sitting in his comfortable chair reading Saturday Evening Post, and he he also I say from most of his life uh, subscribed to Book of the Month Club. But he read incredible books and he had an incredible library. So it was really by his example and, you know, ultimately he gave me a dictionary. He gave me my first typewriter and he encouraged me to write. What I didn't know really until, I guess until after I decided I wanted to be a writer, um, that he had wanted to be a writer and um, was absolutely thrilled when I became one and loved, you know, sort of vicariously sharing my experiences. We ended up corresponding, I'd say, for 30 years, sometimes two or three letters uh, a week. And a good deal of that, I'm going back through some of those now, really is about what I was doing. Writing wise and work wise, he was a great encourager. That's uh, what's incredible about that is that I think maybe for a long time you maybe harbored, harbored this like maybe hope that you would pursue that line of work, but didn't shove it down his down in your throat like uh, you know, like a little league coach, like a father coaching his kid in baseball or something. Like you will play ball, you will try to uh, try to live out my dreams that failed, but he just. You know, he just gave you a couple of tools and let you make the choice. So that was like a real, a real great Jedi mind trick that he used. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I wonder if he consciously knew that. But, uh, I mean, he loved writing, and, and, uh, and you know, later he, he became such a supporter that I mean, it was funny, and sometimes I was embarrassed, but but he became this. In his later years, after he retired, he had worked for the Western Union. And uh, after he retired, he became a great letters to the editor writer. <laughs> Actually, really good letters about, you know, during the Vietnamese War and everything. And, and letters, I mean, at that point, he was living in Houston. And the the uh, editor of the, of the editorial department would sometimes call him excuse me, and say, Mr. Sims, would you be interested in writing us a, a letter about blah, 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 you know, how you feel about that? But, so the letter writing then carried over to me, and uh, he 
actually started sometimes writing my letter, my editors <laughs> about something I'd written. I, I did a 15-part series on sugarcane workers in South Louisiana that ran in the evening paper in New Orleans. It was a big series, and long each day it was this long, long piece. And so one day the editor, the editorial, the one that handled the letters to the editor, came over to my desk and said, Tiffany, you have a strange letter. I don't understand it. <laughs> he used me this letter, and it said, Dear editor, that piece you're running on uh, sugar cane workers is the best thing you've ever run. I may be prejudiced, sincerely, always <laughs> still. <laughs> and I said, Gene, that's my daddy. <laughs> and another time, he he really wanted me to work for the Washington Post. And at that point, I really didn't have any interest in working for the Washington Post. I had a job in New Orleans that I really liked. And um, at any rate, I came home one day and had an envelope from my father, opened it. There was a application to the Washington Post and a letter from Ben Bradley. Huh. And so Bradley said, you know, dear Mr. Sims, thank you for your suggestion. We've already filled the position uh, left by Sally Quinn. This is in South Louisiana. Sally Quinn decided to get married. And, um, but if Ms. Sims does apply, here's an application. And so I called my father, and I, and I said, Daddy, what what did you say to Ben Bradley? <laughs> he said, Dear Mr. Bradley, um, you know, I understand Sally Quinn's left, and you have an opening. Not only can Patsy Sims do anything that Sally Quinn can, she can do it a heck of a lot better. Signed it all. Anyway, so, you know, he, he went overboard sometime, but that was my gung-ho's father. Um, ironically, a little bit around that time, I got a job offer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I took the place of a woman who had been hired to take Sally Quinn's place, so it was kind of a funny huh. chain of events. Clearly, your father was in your corner. Um, who else? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who else at a young age gave you that permission to keep to keep going and keep exercising your talent and your craft to, to keep growing in this in, in in this form of journalism. Oh geez. You talk when you say young age with J five ten. Um I would say you know, I started working from the New Orleans paper at the beginning of my the fall of my junior in college when I started majoring in journalism. And I was very fortunate and at that, right about that time, there had been two afternoon papers in New Orleans that merged into what became the state side, which is what I worked for in all the years that I was in New Orleans. And they had an opening in my journalism professor, the head of the journalism school, called me in and said, would you be interested in working in the paper? And, you know, God, I thought I had to pay anybody to, you know, get me the paper. Anyway, he, um, they had called and they needed somebody to work 20 hours a week. And so I did. And it was in what in those days were called the old, you know, women's section, which are the, you know, predecessors to uh, the feature sections today. But at any rate, I, the, the editor of that section at that point was a woman named Lorraine Borough. 
Lori was a real big encourager also. She also taught me a lot, I think, that influenced the kind of writer I got to be. I mean, she was a real human interest people kind of person and wrote a, a column that were a little, you know, sort of just vignettes and everything. And so, you know, I think I owe a lot to her. I mean, she's been dead a long time now. But I think that she encouraged me uh, she let me do things that, you know, I was really, gosh, I'm trying to think how old I would have been, very, you know, like 21, 20, um, less, maybe, I guess, maybe 21, I don't know, somewhere around that, mm-hmm. that age. Um, but she let me do a lot, a lot of things. And she really, I think, was a great, I mean, she really encouraged me and by her example to, to focus on people in a way that was just not quote, you know, to get at them and what they were like and what they looked like and that kind of thing. The other thing she let me do is we were both of us believers that the women's section didn't have to be women's stories. I mean, we sometimes drove the editor of the paper crazy because he would come in there waving the newspaper saying, this is not a women's story. <laughs> and, you know, I I was writing about drug addiction, the criminally insane, you know, all of these things in the women's section. Um, but what I would do to get around him is I would find a woman. And for instance, the story about the criminally insane, I found a woman, a female who, lawyer, who uh, was very interested in the cause of the criminally insane and how they were treated at the state mental hospital. And so I used her as an excuse for writing this story. So, you know, I did those kinds of things. I wrote about drug addiction. I was, at one point, I was guest of honor at a Christmas party given at Ed Gallup Prison in Louisiana by their Narcotics Anonymous chapter because of stories that I've written in the women's section about drug addiction. So, anyway, so I say, you know, Lorraine was certainly one of those who encouraged me. Uh so for people who might not recognize, uh, might not know, uh, how would you define what when you were when you were in your twenties? How would you define what a women's story was at that time? Oh, at that time was um, recipes, fashion, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, raising babies, um, uh, a profile of a woman, you know.
I got married right after I graduated. I married a guy who worked in the morning paper, and he did not believe that we should. In the paper, we should. We were all on the same floor at the newspaper, the morning and the evening paper. He didn't believe that the two of us should work together on the newspaper, and of course. I was the one that needed to leave the newspaper, and this was before I became a liberated woman. Um, and so I went to work for two miserable years with the State Board of Health writing pamphlets about rabies and, and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and fortunately, they ran out of money and had to let me go. And then he was, my former husband, was more than willing for me to go back to the newspaper because he wanted another paycheck in the family. But anyway, at that point, I ended up working one year on city desk. And what they gave women to do was pitiful. I mean, I, I spent that year every two hours checking the temperature and giving it to the city editor. Uh, one time they had a bad hurricane or sometimes storm that blew all the trees down and they had a plant a tree contest and every day I had to come up with new news about a tree and the fundraiser to replace the trees. And anyway, at the end of the year, they, they had an opening in the women's section and Lorraine wanted me to come back into the women's section. And the city editor, or I guess by that time the managing editor, came over to me and said, you know, Lorraine wants you to back there, but you know, you don't have to go back to the women's section. You can stay on city desk. And I said, no, thank you. I think I'll go back to the one of this section. Because I was like, I, they weren't letting me do the kinds of stories that I could do back in the women's section. That's amazing. That must have been a, a kind of a, a tough time, like a really, like, you know, you were on such a, I don't know, this this short leash that you couldn't you couldn't shake for a while there. Like, there were these stories that you really wanted to get at, and then you're you know, you're writing leads for trees and checking the thermometer. And, you know, finally, you know, you were able to get on, get back to the women's desk where you could do these, do these types of, uh, you know, more hard reporting stories. So what was that like when you were back on the women's desk with Lorraine and uh, finally able to cut loose a bit? It was great. I, you know, I, it, it, you know, we were winning awards of these stories. We were beating people from the city desk. You know, with stories we were doing in the women's section. A little bit after I got back, I don't remember the exact timing, Lorraine became very ill and uh, essentially did not ever really return as women's editor. Uh, she, When she was able to, she would write a column. So I became women's editor, uh, which then, you know, I was not only, I was able to hire people who, uh, I, and of course I was, I would hire kindred spirits, um, and uh, we would do these things. At one point, actually early on, we wrote uh, a long series, each of us doing some stories on abortion. This is like, I can't remember, late 69 or 70 or something like that. Um, mm. So, you know, the way, what it was, I mean, it was, it was just a sense of freedom. Um, even though we had to be cagey with our freedom and how we did it, you know. Yeah, that must have been like. How did you? It, it's talk about a like an inflection point there, just in terms of culture, and also just you know, probably like where you where you felt you stood in that culture. Like, well, how hard was it to navigate what you wanted to do versus what was expected of you to do? How 
with was that I, you know, I, I think more than anything, I had to be willing to, to, to just let the editor go in one ear and out the other ear. You know, it, mm-hmm. I guess this is my mother in me again, <laughs> yeah. that I just, you know, I just did it. I found, I found ways around it, and, uh, you know, he never fired me, um, and uh, so uh, it Cold Blood comes out, do you start to turn around the idea in your head like, oh, I want to start doing stuff like that? Oh, I don't know. I think it was probably immediate. I mean, I had mm-hmm. been the Capote of his short stories um, and really reluctantly read In Cold Blood because I liked his short stories and his little novelettes. Um, I, you know, I think about even... And I don't know where it came from, but I, you know, I went to Tulane, and I did features. And I remember some of the stories that I did. Even then, I was I was playing with narrative. I don't know that I knew what it was or thought about it, 
but I, I can remember one story that it was like homecoming and I had to go around and write about the um, fraternity houses getting ready for homecoming or something. And I just remember me trying to get at how the hammer sounded and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I'm not sure. I, I guess I, I was fooling around with it, but I think in terms of Capote that it made me think more about um, that I could do it in more serious journalism and that I could do it in, in book form. And that the novel I always wanted to write didn't have to be fiction, um, that it could be nonfiction. So I guess the really first serious thing I did, and that was 68, was when I came back to New Orleans from San Francisco, I, I worked out there two years, and then the, the state got a created a job for me called Special Assignment Writer, which was like freelancing and getting a paycheck at the end of every week. And I had a lot to say about what I did, and they didn't care how long it took, and they let me experiment. And so I came back, I remember, I guess in July or August of the summer of 72, and one of the first things I did was a series on race relations, and that, I guess, is about a 10 or 11 part series. But then after that was when the Sugar King thing came up. And that, the Sugar King series was really, really my first real process. And I, I was working with um, an editor who was not that much older than I, and um, he just gave me free reign to do what I wanted to do with that. And so, as far as I Capote, ah, here's my chance <laughs> to be Capote. Hmm. And uh, it, as I said, it was 15 parts, but we had characters that continued all the way through it. And instead of calling it first of a series or second of a series, we called it chapter one, chapter two. And, and I got more more feedback from that, more response from that than I think anything, anything that I did in my entire newspaper career. Uh, I mean, the, the letters to the editor were incredible. Some of them were good, some of them were outraged because the sugar boys were so powerful. Yeah, I can't, I, that was really my first chance to really, I guess, to really try doing something like Capote did. Yeah, what does that say about the the power of of narrative and we we see with you know these days you know Roy Peter Clark's done this uh, does this kind of work you know Tom Tom French uh, and countless others and this really tends to really like just strike a chord with readers and real and taps into something that gets beyond the cerebral brain and more to the heart and um mm-hmm. and so what what do you think it is about this kind of work that just I don't know it it Starts it fires people up and moves people. Yeah, I, well, I do. I mean, I think people can identify better. You know, when you're talking about people and you're you're showing, you're taking the reader into the lives of the people that you're writing about. But, you know, I, I not only because of Capote, but just because of my own reading habits. I knew that when I they could have a, a newspaper or whatever can have a wonderful series. And I was wow, what a wonderful series. I'll read the first story. The next day, I read the lead and maybe a couple of paragraphs. And the next day, I read the lead. And the next day, maybe just a headline. And 
I really felt this was an important story. And I felt writing this in the traditional feature story, you know, method way of style, was not going to hold readers in the way that I wanted them to hold them. So, you know, I thought, this is, let's just see what narrative will do, if this will hold them. And, and it did. They, you know, the paper ended up replaying the whole series and, you know, I don't remember how many thousand that they printed of that. But, but it did, I think it, you know, it just, as I said, it, it draws people into the lives of other people in, in a very intimate way and takes them along on their story. And as I said earlier, you know, we all like stories. And so... And they were compelled to read, not just the week, but they they had to read the whole story to get to the end, you know, to see how it ended. Mm. Um, And then I'd say from then on, I really tried to do that. I did another series on the lives of police officers and, you know, attempted to do the same kind of thing, Um, you know, doing narratives and spending great periods of time with, with police officers and stuff. Um, but I, I just think it's magic. I think it, to me, the very power of narrative is that you can get people to read about stories, about subjects that they never in the world would have read otherwise, that they never thought they were interested in. And, and you hook them in the beginning, and you just don't let them go until you get to the very end. How do you, with this type of long-form writing, how do you... In, in the in the process of research and reporting, start reporting for narrative and start seeing, like, sort of, uh, maybe a lack of a better term, like, shaping your reporting for the longer arc. Like, is there is there a tactic you use to, to sort of approach this, knowing that you're going for, you know, this big sweeping arc? I don't. I go in, and I don't, I don't try to preconceive how it's going to end. Um, I just, you know, I, I, I don't have, I don't, I'm not thinking of narrative arc when I start because I think to have a preconceived idea, you can cut yourself off mm. from some good material and a good story. You know, I start out, you know, I, one, you know, the tools that I use, I, you know, I interview, I use, I'm a big believer in tape recorders, not just for an interview, but to pick up scenes so that I have the noise and the quotes and everything uh, that's going on so that I can recreate a scene. Uh, I take photographs and I, I take tap, tap the uh, photographs, you know, above or beside my computer so I can see the people as I write about them for description and everything. You know, I take notes. I tend to over-research, but I collect a lot of different material because I want what I need to recreate what I experience. I really am not completely sure how it's going to go together until I have everything together. I go through a period of where I'm transcribing my notes. Uh, Well, let me back up and say while I'm on the road, I do every night if I'm on the road, go back to my, my hotel motel. And in the you know, my early days, I was carrying a big IBM typewriter with me because I didn't have a portable. But whatever I had, a typewriter or a computer, I sort of debriefed myself. I type over my written notes, and uh, and then I 
I write about things that maybe I didn't write down. Um, I think about what I smelled, what I heard, how I felt, how he looked, expressions and that kind of thing. I try to get as much down as I can in my notes um, and in my transcripts. I, as I'm transcribing, I'm doing more than transcribing what they say. I'm transcribing the tone of voice. I'm describing how perhaps he pounded his fist on the desk as he said, you know, that kind of thing. All of these things that are detailed that when I'm recreating a scene, I have them, at, you know, I have them there. I can, I can relive what happened. And uh, so, you know, I get all of that together and then I go through this period of, oh my God, I wish the house would burn down and destroy all the I have to tackle it into a story or a book. <laughs> Am I going to be able to do this? Um, is this a time it's not going to work, you know? And uh, so far, not going to work. Somehow God strikes me and something happens. But the other thing I, I'm a big believer in is let me, you know, sometimes you know you pound yourself over the head because you're not coming up with an opening or a you know, a paragraph or a phrase or a passage is not writing itself. And, and what I've learned is, is all of that is really part of the writing process. And, and even when things aren't working and you think you're not thinking about it, your subconscious is working. And so I try not to beat myself up when it doesn't come as quickly as I wish it would. And I, I'm also a great believer in the night, at night before you go to bed, reading over the material, reading over what you have, reading over the passage, and thinking about that, because I think there's a way that when you're sleeping, again, this is all going through your mind, and, and you know, I find that sometimes when I do that, that I wake up in the middle of the night with an idea, or, or early in the morning, and, um, so, I mean, that's sort of my approach to getting going, you know, writing-wise, and I, I love it when it first, you know, when it really starts moving, when you wake up and paragraphs are writing themselves hmm. in your mind. I mean, sometimes when that really gets going, I will leave my my computer, my office is at the opposite end of the bedroom, I will leave it on and get up and come in and not turn the light on and sometimes keep my eyes closed and write, you know, it's going through my head and... I think when when all of that starts happening and phrases start turning, it, to me, the, it feels like I'm on the high wire, you know. Huh. And and I anyway, to me, it's an exhilarating feeling. Wow. And I, I wanted to get back to a point you made about recorders and um, you know, having you know uh being a fan of as both of us i'm sure are of like john mcphee and he just had a new book come out uh about the writing process and uh he's for years has been adamant about not using recorders because he thinks reporting is a selective process and recorders don't select they can't they they they're like a you know fishing net that just trolls everything and um he just thinks they're intrusive and 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 whatnot but uh where like you, you clearly use it. At, at what point did you realize that like no, this is an incredible tool that collects maybe collects more than I'll ever need, but at least it gives me the 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 choice to be selective of what to leave out at the end and 
not have to rely on very messy handwriting and missing stuff because you were scribbling so much. Like, uh, I don't know, like, he's so against it. And uh, how did you come to a place where you were like, no, I am totally for it? Well, I, you know, I started using um, a tape recorder out in, when I was out in California. And so when I came back into that job where I did these long pieces in the world, that was when I really started using the tape recorder for everything because I was doing these long kinds of things. I want really to disagree with McVeigh in that I don't think, I think that it's the writer who has to be selective. Um, and so, you know, I think that, sure, you have everything on the tape recorder, but that's the beauty of it. And it's up to me to be selective. Because I have a 20-page transcript doesn't mean I use 20 pages um, of what, you know, I might only use three lines from it. But I have it there because, you know, I don't know what I'm going to use until I get back and, and start, you know, writing with it. And I, I just think that, one, it, it's, it's so much more accurate but beyond that it's so you can really capture the way a person talks um mm -hmm. when you have a tape butter i just think it's such a rich um tool and i i also think you know a lot of people talk about the dread um transcribing but to, to me transcribing is still another point of getting this in your head um yeah, it's drudgery <laughs> to do it, but but still, it, it's part of the writing process. It's putting it in my head and planting it there a little bit more. And I'm sorry, Brenda, I think maybe I've gotten off on not answering your point. Did I, it, it, about is, is there's another point you want me to make? No, this is me? this is great. Like yeah, you're making a great the great case for for the report uh, for the recorder and that's exactly what i what i hearing the way you've you you've advocated for it and justified it in your own reporting and it helps me here because sometimes i i go i i love the recorder for that reason i don't trust myself to catch everything there are things i just straight up miss i'm like i don't remember having like i don't remember him saying that in the conversation and the recorder caught it for me and yeah, transcribing. Yeah. Tra tra yeah, it's a bummer to transcribe, but like you said, it's it's another chance to to have those have the have the conversations drilled back into your head. And uh, at that point, yes, at twenty pages or twenty thousand words, maybe you use a hundred out of that, but at least you've you've given yourself every ample opportunity to to use it and not rely on bad handwriting and have to throw stuff out because you can't read your notes. And the other thing that I find useful with the tape recorder, especially when I'm getting started, or I'm getting started on a new section or a new chapter or whatever, I like to take the tape recorder, say at night, lay down, put the tape recorder, and turn the light off, turn the tape recorder on, close my eyes, and listen, because it puts me back where I was. Hmm. Um, even though I have only the voice, in my mind I can picture picture us and what we were doing and what was happening. So I find it really helpful sometimes in, in deciding how I want to start or how I want to do something. You know, it, it just helps bring it back alive. And that's the other thing, too, is when you're writing a book especially, 
you takes you know you may not get to that part of the story for a year depending on how long you're writing this thing but with the tape recorder it brings it all back to you like it happened you know an hour ago the night before you know it, it just makes it fresher i think in your mind and and i think the same thing with photographs and, and actually I guess I started doing it. I can remember when I did the clan book. I wasn't really take. I didn't take pictures. But what I did was pictures of magazines or whatever. I you know would put them as I said behind the wall behind my my uh, at that point typewriter. I remember one time I had to have something repaired and my you know I just remember this African American repairman or somebody coming in, you know, with his eyes getting wide when he sees these pictures and these burning bosses and these people over my computer. But but all of that really for me was putting me back there so that I could write with try to write with more immediacy. And mm-hmm. uh but then eventually he started taking pictures and I I think, you know, Walt Harrington is another believer in tape recorders and for, and photographs. And he really encouraged me, I think, to do more with photographs. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly. I remember him one scene in this murder story that he caught, that he wrote uh, for the Post decades ago, The Detectives. Um, and I remember him following the detectives out to some kind of murder scene. And he took this photograph and he did. It wasn't until he got home and was, you know, looking at the photographs that I can't remember if it was a coin, but there was something significant that was on the ground that he hadn't even noticed when he took the photograph. You know, hmm. so I, I just think, you know, and I realize now probably there are probably some people who are doing videos. I, you know, I don't know how that works, but anyway. <laughs> The hearing you talk about all this stuff just makes you like the perfect person to like have edited this this or uh, and curated this selection of uh, work from these brilliant women journalists for the stories we tell. And what was the process like for you to go through all these pieces and and get them into this this wonderful collection? Like, what was that? What was that process like for you as you started digging into this kind of work? Well, I think that I've always kept folders of stories that I liked, that I admired, that I thought were well-written, for one reason or another. And I I did another anthology in the early 2000s, and it really, you know, again, it was sort of like my favorite pieces. In terms of this, um, you know, Mike and I talked, and, and... we really wanted a collection of, of women who had really at the forefront of women's writing in long form. And, and so I started out really sort of writing down my favorites and favorite writers that I thought ought to be in it, stories that I thought ought to be in it. Um, and, and then I started talking to editors I know primarily magazine editors, and asking for their suggestions. Um, and then so they, they made suggestions again, both of writers and of, um, of, of particular pieces. And 
and then also to rider friends, other rider friends, and and people who teach this, um, they get there. So, and then you know, uh, Mike was putting in some of his people, you know, that he knew that I I wasn't familiar with, and uh, you know what we were looking for was were two things. We wanted not just interesting story material, but also stories that were outstanding for their writing and in, in their reporting. Um, and that, you know, that demonstrated what, you know, what's really fine, the fine writing in this genre, what it ought to be like or what it can be like. So those are some of the things that we, we hope to include. And I think, I think, too, the, the goal was two things. One, uh, to pay homage to these women for the work that they've done and are doing, um, but also to demonstrate I guess we particularly wanted to inspire younger women to see what you can do. But I don't think I would limit it just to other young women. I think I, I, I think there's a lot for male writers to learn from these women and these stories. So I think, you know, that was sort of our goal to come up with that kind of a collection. And and I would say that we probably could have put out an encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really had, in the beginning days, a long long list and and then at some point we decided okay we can't do all of this we will do two volumes uh i'm not gonna as it turns out i'm not gonna do the second volume but what we decided to do was to make this volume women who are 50 and older and that the second volume would be people who are younger than 50. um so that took some of the list off and um, I don't know. There were just various reasons that we went through. It, it, you know, it was really difficult to mm-hmm. leave some people off, and we really felt like we should not that we don't, you know weren't going to do more than twenty because the book is already. Have you seen the print version of it? It's pretty thick. No, I um, I have a, a a PDF version, but it's I think it's uh, close to four hundred pages. Yeah, I don't remember what the page count is, but it's pretty thick. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, obviously you had to leave some out. And, I mean, that's one of the difficult things, I think, of doing an anthology. To me, it's it's harder to let stories go than it is to find good stories. Um, so, you know, and I, there, you know, there are just a lot of reasons. Like, you know, I guess I'm going to just personal taste or whatever, but, you know, the ones that were not included, it's no reflection on those stories or those writers. It was just a matter of practicality of not being able to have more. Those tiebreakers had to have been hard hard for you to decide, like, because anything easily could have could have been included. And uh, what did those tiebreakers look like to you on an individual taste basis? Maybe there was a story that was very similar in subject matter to something we'd already decided on, you know, set on. And so, you know, maybe it had to do with subject matter. Um, maybe it just, uh, the writing was not, to me, as wonderful as one that we used. I don't know. You yeah. know, I, I, it just, that's sort of water under the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but there, you know, we were, I'm really pleased 
Well, the other uh, backup, too, I, I'm leaving this now, in terms of where the stories came from, you know, there were some, as I said, that I, I really, I mean, I knew that I wanted to use Joan Didion's Dreamers of the Golden Dream, for instance. To mm-hmm. me, that such a fabulous piece of writing and reporting, I mean, I, to me, it's just incredible that Joan Didion wasn't there for the trial. She didn't get there until after the trial and after, you know, like a year after the murder. And yet, that you would never know it by the writing of that story. So I knew I wanted to use that. And, you know, there are pieces like that. But then we also asked um, the women that we were approaching to, do you have a a particular favorite that you would like to see us use, or do you have some particular favorites? And some of them would come back with two or three stories um, that they that they consider their favorites, and then uh, I would read through those and, and choose a story. What we what I thought what I particularly liked, or what I thought was was good for the you know for the mix. Um, the the writers were all fantastically cooperative and. Uh, helpful in, in this in doing this and, and I think there was a great deal of um, excitement among them, enthusiasm among them for this that they really felt it was about time that an anthology like this came out. When we got to the end and you know, Mike was looking and thinking about, you know, who to ask to write a blurb for the book. We, we decided, you know, how can you ask somebody else to write a blurb when we think when we have the women we think are just so the best, you know, in the book? And so we asked the women if they had interest, if they were interested or willing uh, to write a blurb, and we ended up with a bunch of wonderful blurbs um, from them about the anthology and their role in it and that kind of thing. Um, you know, in, in choosing the stories, it sometimes uh, it was sometimes interesting that when I when somebody made a suggestion, I, I can think of a couple of times when I thought just seeing what the subject matter is, I I would say to myself, "Oh God, this is going to be deadly," you know, hmm. and and then you start reading, but this is the magic of narrative. It was just. Incredible! It was stunning, um, and I think of, of uh, a piece by um, Mimi Swartz, uh, Mimi from Texas Monthly, and um, her her story is mothers, sisters, daughters, wives, and it's about um, the Texas legislators you know, waging war on Planned Parenthood. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be deadly. It is a fabulous story. Um, and she does such a beautiful job of capturing the tone and the flavor of, you know, these sessions in the state legislature in Texas and these men. And uh, at any rate, it's it just, you know, it's wonderful when you come up with something like that and it's just just blows you off your feet and you were totally not expecting it. Um, and, you know, I think of also Susanna Lassard's story about Park Avenue and, uh, you know, she takes the street and um, and writes about this cultural divide, how one half of it is, you know, ghetto and the other half is, you know, you know, up, you know 
the very wealthy of the wealthiest. You know, it's it just a really interesting class thing, study and everything. But anyway, that was some of the magic and some of the fun, too, of making these discoveries of stories that maybe you weren't familiar with, but just sort of um, really just caught you and held you and... and uh, yeah, it sounds yeah. like it was a lot of fun for you to do this too and compile this list. Yeah, it 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 it, it was it, it it you know and, and also beyond the stories, it was fun getting to know these women, you know, um, you know, um, either by phone or or internet, and uh, you know, a lot of women that I, that I have never met um, that uh, getting to know them, and uh, so that that was rewarding and uh, it was also fun working with Mike mm-hmm. um, he's a fun to work with uh, I've enjoyed the, the project yeah I, Patsy I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours but I, I need to be respectful of your time and uh <laughs> This was um this is really great to get to hear your story and also how how you work through the story your reporting process and then of course talking about how you went through and sort of curated this wonderful collection of stories it's a uh, it's a uh, what a great uh, you know body of work you have and also what you've done with this uh the stories we tell collection so uh thanks for thanks for all the work you've done now we'll have to We'll have to do a part two another time where we can dig into some some other some other stuff too. But I think um, this is wonderful getting to talk to you at length, at least in this early going. So thank you for the time. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Talk to you later, Patsy. Thanks to Patsy Sims for coming on episode 73 of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Brilliant insights. Hope you got a lot out of it. If you'd like to maybe have a part two. And a follow-up with Patsy, uh, just uh, let me know. Ping me on Twitter, at Brendan O'Mara. Also, go to brendanomara.com for past episodes of the podcast, as well as the sign-up sheet for the monthly newsletter, where I give out my recommendations for reading for the month and also what you might have missed from the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks.